escaping goblins to be caught by wolves, he said. Though now we say out of the frying pan into the fire when we're in the same sort of uncomfortable situations. That was Bilbo Baggins in the sixth chapter of Tolkien's The Hobbit. Well, today we're going to watch a great king escape goblins only to be caught by wolves. Or as we say now, out of the frying pan into the fire. David's going to go from Absalom only to be chased by Sheba. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 20, 2 Samuel 20. It's in part one of the Bible. In this chapter, we're going to see yet again the tragedy of rebellion and divisiveness against God's king and people. The tragedy of rebellion and divisiveness against God's king and his people. Sometime later, King David's son Solomon, hailed as the wisest kings of the earth, said, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven are an abomination to him. And what's the last item on that list that wise King Solomon wrote? The Lord hates a false witness that breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. We read that together in a responsive reading. And it's not simply that the Lord hates an action, but the Lord hates a person. Listen again. The Lord hates a false witness. The Lord hates the person who sows discord among the brothers. Proverbs 6, 19. And friends, the fact that God expresses moral outrage against a false witness and a divisive person is one of the many reasons God is worthy of so much praise. He is a God of justice. He's not morally indifferent to sin. And if you have ever been the object of a false report or you've been in a church affected by division, you know why the Lord hates it so much and why he should be praised for hating it so much. So what does a passage like Proverbs 6 have to do with 2 Samuel 2? Well, here's what we're going to see. As 2 Samuel 20 unfolds, we're going to see the tragedy of rebellion and divisiveness against God's king and his people. And as we watch that divisiveness and division in 2 Samuel 20, we know what God thinks about it. Proverbs 6, 19, the Lord hates the one who sows discord among his people. That's what the Lord thinks about what's going on in 2 Samuel 20. And what makes the division in Proverbs 6 and 2 Samuel 20 so loathsome is the relationship. The Lord hates the one who sows discord among whom? Brothers. And in 2 Samuel 20, we're going to watch brothers stir up division, even murder one another, brothers murdering brothers. So here's an early point. Let's take heed as we read EBC that we don't bite and devour one another. Galatians 3, 5, 13. For it's written, 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone destroys God's temple, his church, God will destroy him. The Lord hates the one who sows division among his brothers. Proverbs 6, 19. So with that general theme in mind, and if you read the text ahead of time, Joel Lindstrom told me ahead, I mean, we've got a beheading, we've got wallowing in blood, we've got a stabbing, we've got division. It's all supposed to make you say, I don't want any of that. That's true. 
So with that ugliness of division in mind, the carnage and the bloodiness in front of us, we're going to watch three overlapping scenes and don't think, when did he say this? This is what's going on, circling on. We have God's king opposed, God's kingdom divided, and God's king and kingdom reunited imperfectly. We have an opposed king, a divided kingdom, and a reunited king and kingdom imperfectly, leaving us wanting something else. Let's begin by reading. Let's begin by reading at the end of 2 Samuel 19, chapter 19. So 2 Samuel 19.41 through the first two verses of chapter 20 for now. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered, the men of Israel like this, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered back to the men of Judah. We have ten shares in the king and David also. We have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Meaning, why didn't you ask our help? Well, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We, the tribe of Benjamin, have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from Jordan to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Just when it looks like David had reunited his kingdom, rebellion breaks out again. He's gone from goblins to wolves, from the frying pan to the fire. I'm going to quote at least three times this morning from Matthew Henry. I hope that's okay. Here's the first one. We must not think it strange, writes Matthew Henry, that while we are in this world, if the end of one trouble is the beginning of another one, deep sometimes calls unto deep. David has escaped the goblins to be caught by wolves. It's one thing to face an enemy coming at you from the outside. We know who that is and where it's coming from. It's another thing to have an enemy coming at you from the inside. Friendly fire is the worst kind of fire. And here comes Sheba. Well, who is he? Sheba's a Benjamite. Now, David's always faced opposition from this tribe. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. His most recent antagonist, Shimei, was the tribe of Benjamin. And now here comes Sheba, somebody else from the tribe of Gen Benjamin, opposing God's king again. And what makes the opposition tragic, as we're going to see, is that here we have one part of God's people revolting about to cannibalize another part of God's people. Domestic violence is one of the worst kinds of violence. And Sheba is inciting a kind of domestic violence within God's household. No wonder the narrator opens in verse 1 saying, Now Sheba is a worthless man. Beloved, it doesn't matter how visionary, how gifted, how much leadership a person has, if they stir up division among God's people, that person is worthless. 2 Samuel 20, verse 1, there happened to be a man there who was worthless. A wicked man 
another translation says. And as character always does, Sheba's character now shows up in his actions. He blows the trumpet loudly and declares, we have no part in David. And now in calling attention to this blowing in the trumpet, the narrator is calling us to listen to what was just announced. We have no part in David. God's king. And note the irony of Sheba's words that follow the trumpet blast. At the end of chapter 19, we have ten shares of David. How come you're not letting us help? But now we have no part in David. Oh, the double-mindedness of our hearts. Again, Matthew Henry observes, people are very apt to run to extremes. We have ten parts in David, they said. Almost in the next breath, we have no part in him. Today, Hosanna. Tomorrow, crucify. Beyond all of this, it's a rejection of the king, God's king. We have no part in David. And when they blew the trumpet, they're saying, we have no part in God's Messiah. We don't want any part in God's king, in his Christ anymore. Blow the trumpet indeed. God's people now are rejecting the very king God provided for them. Here then is God's king opposed. As the flow of the story moves along, you can hear another trumpet blast, maybe another king, a son of David who would come into his own and his own would not receive him. I don't know if it's the case, but perhaps an imperial trumpet sounded to quiet the crowd and a Roman governor brings a king out before Jews who had packed Jerusalem for Passover. And Pilate said to them, what do you want me to do with this man who's your king? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has this man done? And before he could finish his sentence, they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so the actions of 2 Samuel 20, when God's people rejected God's king, are fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. When the world he made, when the world he came to love, shouted back to him, we have no part in you. Crucify that man. Every time... Every time we sin, friends, we are saying the love of God's king is not enough. Every time we sin, we add our voices to Sheba's. It doesn't matter what the sin is. When you sin, you are saying, I have no part in him. His love, I need something else or more than the king's love. Well, God's opposed king has a big mess on his hands again. And David knows, as the great theologian Barney Fife said, that he needs to nip it in the bud or this rebellion will be worse than Absalom's. See, Absalom's rebellion had threatened God's king, but Sheba's now is threatening the kingdom. In a moment, we're going to watch God's opposed king respond to his divided kingdom. But before we move on, Let's think in general for a moment of what's happening here to make an attempt at applications. God's king is being opposed. As a result, God's kingdom is divided. His own family is divided. God's king is opposed. God's kingdom is being divided. Why? Because Sheba stirred up division. His mindset appears to be something like, I can do what needs to be done around here without being friends with David. I don't need a perfect king to do what needs to be done. 
In other words, some commentators, scholars say that Sheba's rebellion is more political than violent. Whereas Absalom mustered an army and rode out to war, Sheba just is going to start working off to the side, apart from the king. Friends, that's how division in churches works sometimes, too. Church division is not always direct and violent. It's often indirect, disconnected from the congregation or leadership. It's one tribe like Benjamin, in a sense, huddling up in a way different from others. I don't need a perfect congregation all that much. I'll just be over here doing my faithful thing and my tribe of Benjamin. I don't have to be. I don't have to have a part to be faithful, says Sheba. But, beloved, if nothing else in the Bible does, the two ordinances we have as the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, show us that we are not fragmented, desperate parts trying to find how we come together. Christ died to make us one, and we must fight not to be one in Christ. We fight to stay one in Christ. That will be part of Nick's message next week when he will show us from Ephesians 4 how we work to maintain the unity. That's the passage Nick is picking for next week, and it goes with this message here. But, but here in 2 Samuel 20, the writer's doing something opposite. He's showing us the carnage, the grotesque nature of God's precious people being ripped apart by another part of God's people. Why? Why is the picture so ugly in this chapter? So that in seeing the damage of division, we will fight as one for each other, not against each other. So let's always be on the lookout, monitoring our congregational life like some computer virus program always running in the background doing that. Here, here, are, here are a few simple questions from these opening verses. Are there ways I'm acting like Sheba against God's king, Jesus? Are there ways I'm acting like Sheba against God's people? Our church. What things, here's, here's a little bit more with Sheba, what things could we be devoted to that could fester division in a body? I mean, Sheba is devoted to himself, his tribe, more than he's devoted to God's king and all of God's people. Are we more devoted to a tribe within a church than we are to the whole of God's church? Now, we could work to apply this, this kind of question in a number of ways. How does the text, how do those questions need to work on you? Well, here is one this morning among many that could be given. It's, it's possible. It's possible that something like shepherding groups could be a, a potential part of division. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm just saying it can. And as we seek to relaunch shepherding groups in the fall and, and might have to move some people around due to providential circumstances, the possibility of over devotion to a group more than the health of the body is at least possible. Division at some level could be lurking right in front of us as we seek to relaunch. And wouldn't Satan love to do that? Because what the Lord hates, Satan loves Sheba's attitude. Now, I didn't plan this series. I'm not administratively gifted enough, and most of you know that, to have planned 2 Samuel 20 several weeks out from the relaunching of shepherding groups. But perhaps one of the ways the Lord is preparing us to relaunch is by being in 2 Samuel 20 
so that we can be on guard for anything, even something like small groups that could become a cause for a Sheba-like tribal division. Could the Holy Spirit be using this text to help us be on guard? Especially in light of the, the wonderful testimonies we heard this morning about the blessing it is to be part of God's people. I know that many of you are not trying to let things be a cause of division. Even Rhett and John, Pastor Rhett and John, said some, some have already come and said, you know, if we need to be moved in a shepherding group and that's best for others, do it. Praise the Lord. Some have said, we actually don't want to move, but we can't remain in our group due to providential life circumstances. We really want to stay, but we can't. Praise the Lord for that humility. We heard Pastor Jared say that one of the best things he's done three weeks ago when he was sitting over here, that one of the most helpful things that happened to him is being in different groups. So his love for more of us has grown and more of our love for him has grown as he took part in different groups. I'm just saying, beloved, I'm not saying it's happening. I'm saying here's right in front of us. If we're not careful, let's step back and say this because we're going to see this point again. Any helpful thing can become a harmful thing. That's what we've seen with idolatry in these chapters. Uh, um, uh, a schedule, a desire to get things done, rest, comfort. Sin happens most often when we turn a helpful thing into a harmful thing, an ultimate thing. So I'm just saying, if we're not on guard, a helpful tool like small groups could become a harmful thing. Like how? They could become a Benjamite tribe within Israel that becomes so close in their own eyes. They become rather insulated, develop their own rhythms, their own kind of thinking, and kind of resist and bristle a bit at other thinking, at even this kind of conversation. Now, this isn't the only way to think about it, only application, but let the text press in on us a little bit. Be careful that we don't have the spirit of Sheba and become tribal and territorial. And this isn't, this isn't a new observation. Uh, in 20, 2007, I told Brian this morning, Brian, I'm going to read from some of your handiwork. We, Pastor John Bastoni passed this out in our last members meeting. 2007, the, these kinds of concerns along with the benefits, we said, as we start in 27, Brian and I got together, but he probably wrote 95% of it. I'll read from some of it in a moment. So if you don't like it, you can talk to Brian because he's the author, right? <laughs> Brian said he's been back to that building where he wrote this first. So... So recently, so uh, in, in, in the last 10 years or so, twice, we've wanted to shift some people around from groups to strengthen the relationships around the body. And two groups made special appeals. We need to stay together. We're really close and caring. Uh, uh, it's probably bad to move us around right now with what's going on. So out of deference and mercy, we left those groups alone. But years later, not one person in one of those groups is still here, and three people from another of those groups is still here. Why? It appears that what happened was they became more devoted to their tribe of Benjamin than they were to their body. The shepherding group became their tribe, their church, and when one or two left, the rest of them left. At our last members' meeting, Pastor Bastoni passed this, handed this out. So we want shepherding groups to be like arteries and veins and capillary channels that circulate the life-giving blood. And consequently, shepherding groups are not to be their own thing, disengaged from corporate worship. They could, writes Brian Pinner. See how I'm deflecting here? See how they, they could distract from the corporate identity. 
They are subservient to the purpose of the larger body, which exists as a united church, not as a confederation of small groups. It could glorify a method. We, we could view them as indispensable to the church's identity. But small groups are not absolutely necessary in order to have a healthy body of believers. Scripture doesn't explicitly mandate that a local church partition into individual small groups like this. And EBC will not hesitate to modify or abandon shepherding groups if they're not furthering the biblical purposes of church or fostering deep unity and love across the flock. They could foster cliques. Paul decries the exclusivity and elitism of saying, I follow Christ. I follow Apollos. I'm from Fountain Inn. I'm from Simpsonville. You see how it could go? Shepherding groups should never center on favorite personalities. The gospel is the epicenter of Christian fellowship. They could spread heresy. 2007, they could inadvertently allow for it. False teachers are a danger not over to the church at Ephesus, but to EBC. A false teacher or teaching could find a small group, an advantageous place to start saying, read this book, listen to this podcast and poison the church. The leadership of, of, of the flock must therefore pay careful attention to yourself and to the entire flock. Acts 20, 28. The point is that in any, any, any smaller gathering, formal or informal, is meant to provide care for each member of the body. And I love this line that Brian wrote. It's to provide every care for every member of the body so that when the whole assembly of believers gathers together on Sunday, it can carry out at maximum capacity what it was designed to do, worship as one. Shepherding group is practice. Remember Alan Iverson, some of you? Talk about practice. Shepherding group is practice. Corporate worship is its game day. Shepherding worship is group is dress rehearsal. Sunday morning is the live event. We want any informal gathering or formal to be like arteries and veins and capillaries that, that help circulate the life-giving blood so that we can strive as one body for the glory of God. And I think we heard this morning, unplanned again from God's Spirit, how precious it is that we all, I know we all want to be on guard for that because it's so special and it's so precious. And Jesus died to make us one. Well, don't be anxious but be confident that God's given us His Holy Spirit, that we can work to display the Spirit-given unity. I was talking to George Collins uh, earlier, and I talked to George and Connie at one point. My, own, my daughter-in-law had asked Connie, too, what's the secret of being in a church for a long time? And Connie Collins said to me, you may not remember, I have it written down. Connie Collins said to me, I told George, be a low-maintenance church member. Takes a lot of humility, low-maintenance church member. So thank you, the Barzaleis. Collins is over there among us. Well, God's king has been opposed. His people are divided. That's not the only application. How should it work on you? But let's watch now as God's opposed king responds to opposition. Verse 3. So David now comes back to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house. And he put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king called to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me. 
within three days and be back here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. So take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. This is God's word. Well, the first thing David does is he sends his newly appointed field general to muster an army. You remember Amasa had led Absalom's army in rebellion against the Lord, but Amasa had failed and lost. So David, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps as an attempt to unify the divided kingdom more quickly, had installed Amasa over Joab as the general. So Amasa gets his first commission. Call the men of Judah together. Get back here in three days. But three days later, neither Amasa nor any army is anywhere to be found. And David's situation has grown worse. What does Amasa's delay mean? Did his inability to raise an army in three days and be back reveal Amasa was incompetent? Was his delay an indication that now he turned a traitor again? Or was the delay an indication of how hard it is to muster an army in three days, especially since everybody had just gone home from the most recent civil war and Amas is a new general with little influence over everybody? Well, it raises his delay raises the dramatic tension in the story. And we're experiencing this now from David's perspective. He doesn't know why. And he doesn't have time to wait anymore. He reasons in verse 6, if we don't get to Sheba soon, he's going to do more harm than Absalom. So David sends Abishai, who's always been wanting to kill somebody the last few chapters. He sends Joab, a brother to Joab. Okay, now he sicks the hounds on him. Go. But sending the army to track down Sheba, we'll come back to that, is not the only thing David does when he gets back to Jerusalem to try to reestablish his kingdom. David had 10 concubines he left back to care for his house. But as part of seizing his father's throne, Absalom had seized those 10 to be a public intimate part of his harem. So when David returned, I think David does the best he can with an awful situation. He provides for every need for the rest of their lives. They will be well cared for, and yet they will live out their days as a widow. Now, at one level, I think David's actions are more protective than punitive. What I mean is that based on a passage like Leviticus 18.15, there was a prohibition that David couldn't take them back. Yet he doesn't want these women to be passed around like property or publicly maligned for the recent events. So he's going to provide for them well and protect them until their dying day. He's then making the best of an awfully sinful situation Perhaps, 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 roughly, roughly, roughly akin to a divorce. Now, if we object to this further, and we could, I just want to say, if this passage bothers you, it only can bother you if Christianity is true. What I mean is, someone could read these verses and say, this is, this is some of the reasons I don't believe in Christianity, because women shouldn't be treated in this way. Now, there there are many things to to dig into that statement, including what was going on with concubines in that day, many of whom in that day viewed it as an honor, not like we do today. But more than that, Greg Bonson points out that the kind of criticism that says, I believe in Christ, I can't believe in Christianity because of a passage like this. He says that criticism is actually assuming the values of Christianity to criticize it. Atheism and secularism or whatever can say, I don't like these actions. 
But you can't say as an atheist or a secularist or whatever, I demand that these are wrong for all people at all times. You actually have to assume the values of Christianity to criticize what you're seeing here. Someone else came at it this way. When you say you are not living up to Christianity, so I don't believe it, that's fair. It's right. But keep this in mind that when you make that critique, you are using the values of Christianity to criticize it. And you know what that means? You're not undercutting Christianity. You're showing the need for true Christianity. In other words, the critique shows that you really like Christian standards or you wouldn't be using them as a basis for your critique. So critique away, indeed. But the objection finally doesn't undermine true Christianity. It shows how much true Christianity is actually needed for a passage like this. And you know what? Because Christianity is true, what David did here, not here but before, is wrong. He should have never had ten concubines in the first place. It was wrong because God forbade it. Having a concubine was culturally acceptable by everyone in that day. Nobody would have thought it was a big deal. For many, it was a culturally acceptable way you worked out your infertility. You didn't go to a fertility doctor. You, you got a concubine. It's all over the ancient Near East. It's all over the Old Testament. Friends, can I tell you, I love you enough to tell you that we have our own modern culturally acceptable ways that we often use to deal with the hurt of infertility. And I don't say this to hurt, but to keep you from it. While we have our own culturally acceptable ways to deal with infertility, they might not be far off from the method of an ancient concubine. And the results can be every bit as complicated and dehumanizing now as they were then. I'm just saying, as a pastor, please be very very careful. Just because the technology is available and widespread accepted in culture, even as concubines were then, doesn't always mean it should be used. Be very, very careful. But beyond that, concubines were a way that you showed your wealth and your honor, your status, especially as a king. And that view is still around in some places and cultures today. In fact, I'm going to say the only worldview then or now that can truly object to what's going on is the Christian understanding. The only law that would have told David what you did is wrong was God's law. That's the only law. The reason David should not have had ten concubines several chapters earlier is because God had forbidden it. It's a satanic perversion of God's creational design of marriage between one man and one woman, as well as a satanic perversion of how women, as the weaker partner and made in God's image, should be honored. It's a perversion of it. Oh, we need a better king than David. We need a king like Jesus. We need a man like Jesus who women were always honored and safe around. Women were were so honored and loved by Jesus, even the worst of the women, that it was women who remained at the cross when everybody else left. And maybe they remained at the cross the longest because they knew how much Jesus loved them as women. Oh, Jesus loves women. He created them 
in his image. He died to redeem them from their sin. And he rose from the dead to reverse the evil effects of sin against women. And as co-heirs of eternal life, they ought to be loved as co-heirs. Oh, David, we need King Jesus. Well, having seen God's king opposed and the kingdom divided, we're about to see God's kingdom reunited imperfectly. Someone is about to die. Let's read verses 7 to 13. And there went out after him, that's Abishai, Joab's men, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were all at the great stone, that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever's for David, let him move on from here and follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he he carried, he dragged Amasa's body off the highway into the field and threw a garment over his body. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went right on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. This is God's word. Now, whether or not David meant the appointment of Amasa over Joab as an intentional slight, Joab took it that way. Joab invites himself to go along with his brother Abishai to hunt down the seditious Sheba. I mean, David had commissioned Abishai to lead the army, but it quickly becomes apparent that Joab is going to lead the army. He has natural strength as a leader. He has good ambition, but all of that is leading him now into the pathway of murder. Ambition and leadership drive, like all good gifts, are helpful, but they can be harmful. What God gave to Joab as a gift to serve others, he was about to use to harm others. In pursuing Sheba, the worthless man, Joab comes across to Moss at the meeting place in Gibeon, the great stone. And as they prepare to meet, remember that Joab and Abishai, they're not the only relatives in this scene. Joab and Abishai are brothers, but Joab and Amasa are also close cousins. Thus, as Joab greets Amasa in verse 9, Joab hails him as such. Is it all well with you, my brother? And Joab's words make what happened next all the more villainous. Amasa approaches without fear or suspicion. Why should he be? This is my brother. This is my cousin. As Joab welcomes Amasa as a brother, he he leans in. Our culture shake hands. Others kiss. Uh, uh, Amasa, uh, Joab leans in uh, for the kiss of greeting, and he leans in with one hand to give the kiss of greeting, and with the other hand, he he inserts the knife of his abdomen, and he and he slowly sits it across the underneath of his belly until all of his insides spill out on the ground. 
Sheba is not the only worthless man who rose up on this day. But Joab rose up against his own blood brother. Joab remembered this fight. He picked you over me. We're not all that different. We remember slights. I can't even be cut off in traffic without thinking, I'm going to speed up and get around that person. Am I the only one who does that? The point is, we're not far off from Joab than we realize. But one Puritan said, it would be a good competition among brothers and sisters. Here's the competition. One labor to give no offense, and the other labor harder to take no offense. But Joab remembered it. He couldn't get out of his mind. He also viewed, probably viewed Amasta as a weak leader who couldn't raise an army when it's needed. You can't do what we need. You were picked in front of me. So posing as a friend, he treacherously kills his rival. And at such close range, it's not surprising that he achieved his purpose without striking a second blow. He's an experienced soldier, skillful with his weapons, and he acts in ruthless self-interest and he can brook no rival, one writer said. And the kiss of Joab turns out to be the kiss of Judas. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood. Look at him. A brother had killed a brother. What happened to David's kingdom? Cain killed Abel. Joab killed Amasa. I mean, David was supposed to be a better king. He was supposed to be a better Adam. But now it feels like we're right back in the opening chapters in Genesis where we have again a fallen king who was not devoted to his wife or his God and members of his household are killing each other like Cain killed Abel. We're still living east of Eden. We're still wanting the king of 2 Samuel 7 to come. We're back in Genesis again. Amasa's dying agonies are ignored. His body's moved. It's dragged off, not as a sign of respect, but because the bloodied body was an obstacle. It was reflecting poorly on the mission at hand, on Joab. In other words, Joab, through this guy, this young dude left back, is trying to cover up what he had done. Wicked people think that they are safe if they can conceal things from the eyes of the world. And if it's hidden, it's like it's never been done. If you can delete the history or delete the comment, nobody needs to know. But the covering of blood with a cloth can't stop its cry reaching God's ear for vengeance or make the cry less loud. Friends, you may, you may really have hidden your sin so cleverly from others that you're persuaded it's okay. But you've hidden nothing from God and sooner or later, God will cut you down. Don't mock God. Well, Job's once again the clear commander. And he says, if you align yourself with me, you align yourself with David. Verse, verse 11, if you're for Joab and David, keep following Joab. There's nothing to see here. Joab, the strong leader with ambition to lead, with courage to act. The man who doesn't sugarcoat matters, but he tells it like it is, has taken matters into his own hands. And now once again, he stands atop Israel's armies as a supreme commander. And he's about to take care of business. I mean, what do you make of Joab? He's a complex figure. We're not done with him. We've got four chapters left in the book. We're not done. But on the one hand, he's a man gifted with refreshing directness. 
He is a man with ambition, with a gift to lead. He has remarkable courage. In general, he's one person who's held the kingdom together. More than once, he holds the kingdom together. More than once, he rescues David. He's the first to come on the scene. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this a bit. But when Joab first comes on the scene, he's a relative unknown, a dark horse draft horse, uh, draft pick of sorts. In 1 Corinthians 11, David asked, I need a volunteer who will go take Jerusalem for the first time. And who's the first person who speaks up? I'll go. And Joab goes and defeats it and he beats the city. And that's the kind of man David needed. And 2 Samuel 10, when the fate of God's promise and king are on the line, it's Joab that rallies the troops and he gives this Henry V like St. Crispin's Day speech and he stands back to back with his brother as the army's closing in and he shows this ferocious courage of a lion and he says, he says, let us be courageous for God and for his people and who knows what God will do and they went out and won a victory. And Job's directness, we just saw recently, snapped David out of his self-absorbed grief that was crippling the kingdom. There's so much to be thankful for in Joab. He's a gifted man, refreshing directness, ambition, a desire to lead, remarkable courage, and in general, a love for what's going on in the kingdom. But on the other hand, Joab's strengths, like Samson's hair, were also his downfall. He had murdered Abner in 2 Samuel 2, described in an almost similar way in chapter 2. Joab... Uh, David had Joab have Uriah killed, and now he's done it again. And often he does what he does in the name of keeping the kingdom together. We might even say, I'm doing this to keep the church together. Joab is valiant, but he's flawed. Here's another one, another illustration. I've got sports illustrations this morning. You guys, you help me out with other ones. Joab is the star wide receiver who can galvanize the locker room, win a must win game. But he often marches the beat to his own drummer and he submits to nobody else except the number on the back of his jersey. He's gifted. You need him on the field. He can bring everybody together. But when those gifts become untethered and unsubmitted to anyone else but themselves, it's a sad thing. That's Joab's life here. There are Joabs in the church. Gifted men at many levels. You need men with ambition and leadership and courage and frankness. But those helpful things can become harmful things like any good thing. Joab's idol, I think, you check it out, you check. Joab's idol was being seen as a leader. And when he wasn't seen or respected as a leader, he killed. Anything that sets us off in anger or sets us into deep despair is what you worship. David shows Amasa over Joab to be a leader, and Joab's reactions in this chapter show you that being seen as a leader was his idol. Joab's are gifted. They're gifts from God. The point, they, they will point out how others are not leading and will assert themselves in helpful ways. But while Joab's point out how others are leading, they can't manage their own souls. They can't manage their own families, their own character. No one is in shape to lead anything if you can't lead your family. Listen, Joab's dark side shows you that godly character is more important than ambition. Godly character is more important than leadership skills. 
Pursuing godliness is more important than pursuing anything else. And being ambitious to serve in whatever way is more important than being ambitious to lead. Listen, I'm coming at the dudes because these texts in Genesis, David and Absalom is coming at the dudes. In Genesis 1 and 2, men make two mistakes in the leadership in the home. We've talked about it on Wednesday nights. Men either abdicate their role or they abuse their role. And personality types and tests and cultural trends and pressures and personal experience can reinforce either of those extremes. But we must let the Bible shape us more than our personalities. The Bible conform us more than our culture. And the Bible guide us more than our lived experiences. Because the Bible is inerrant, not personality types, cultural pressures, or our experiences. Joab's sin is in part is that his gifts and desires became idols for him. Now he's not the only one. David's idols were his boys. We saw that. He wouldn't let anyone touch them. Absalom's idols were his hair and being the king. He won't let anybody touch that. Joab's idol is not being the king, but being seen as a leader. And then you better respect me as one. And if Joab's image as a leader is touched, if he's ever disrespected in Israel, he responds in quiet, seething anger. And what does his anger show you? That being viewed as a good leader for Joab was his idol. Because if you told Joab no... Or he lost face when you picked a lesser leader in his eyes like Amasa. He would respond in quiet anger, serving off to the side. And then he'd wait for the moment to hail you as brother while he runs a knife through your belly. Are you Joab? Godly character is more important than ambition. Loving God's king is more important than being seen as a leader for God's king. Joab's anger showed you his idols. Now I step back and I say, what? I'm not saying emotions are bad. Don't say, you said emotions are bad. I'm saying, what might your emotions exaggerated reveal about your idols? Here's how James says this. You want to know James' interpretation of Joab's life? Here's an inspired interpretation of this, James 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your own passions are at war within you? Give me an example. I'll tell you this. You desire something, but you don't have it, so you murder, James 4, 2. You covet, and you can't get it, so you fight and quarrel. Thank you, Sheba. Thank you, Joab. That's all of us. You know, over the last few days, we were with a group of pastors. Talked to one man who's coming up as a layman at being in the church where he is for 40 years. And he also had a position in that church where he served officially for 30 years in that church. And he served in a way where he had lots of professional training to serve in that way. He actually had a terminal degree in serving in that way. And 30 years in, the leadership said, we want you to serve in a different way. And we're going to do something different with the music. We want you to step back. And he said, I went home and my wife was hurt and I was hurt. And I said, well, why did you stay after 30 years? He said, I, I told my wife. We can leave while we're hurt, but we don't have to lead music in this church. There are other ways to serve this church by doing what I was trained to do. And 10 years later, he said, it's the best decision we've ever made. Satan hates that brother's attitude, but Jesus loves it. Because what did he do for us on the cross? He humbled himself and he served us even to the point 
of death. We have one more scene. You with me? We can do it. We're going to see the real hero of the story. You know who's going to save this, save this mess? God is going to save this kingdom, not through, a, not through this muscular, mighty man like Joab or Sheba. He's going to save the kingdom through a wise woman. Let's read the rest of the chapter. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abal of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in the city called Abel. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Makkah. They set up siege warfare. They cast a mound up to the city. They stood against the rampart. They were battering the wall down to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And Joab came near and the woman said, are you Joab? And he said, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I'm listening. She said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. That means this city. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and we'll withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, And they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem, the king. And now we have a a postscript list of cabinet officials. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehadiah, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelophites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira and Jarathite were also David's priests. This is God's word. For the third time in this chapter, we're seeing the tragic possibility of division among God's people. And now it's an anonymous woman, an unnamed woman, stands up and shows the ugliness of what's about to happen. She says to Joab in verse 19, will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? You hear the terror of those words like Joab's sword went into Amasa's belly. This woman's word should be a sword into our souls. Our Sheba like divisiveness and our Joab like ambitions and hurts when we're overlooked can leave a brother or sister. They can leave a church like ours wallowing in their blood. Amasa's wallowing in his blood. It's ugly. Look at it. Take heed that you don't bite and devour one another. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The entire chapter shows us the ugliness of division. And we sang, here's another way, beneath the cross of Jesus, how can I now dishonor the ones that you have saved? In the end, what rescues the nation is this woman and her wisdom and her character. 
She is pointed out because she's wise and because of her character. She says, I'm one of those who's peaceable and faithful in Israel. Now, this text and these last few chapters have come out men and how they treat women. It's come out Joab's and Absalom's and David's. But I want to say, can I take this moment? I think this passage is now coming at women and cautioning women and telling us how to honor them. We are in. It's not a surprise. This is not a newsflash. I'm not a deep philosophical thinker. We're in kind of a cultural moment, even among some Christians, that's on a deep pendulum swing where I think we're overreacting to past mistakes of Leave it to Beaver from the 1950s and certain views of fundamentalism. We're overreacting now to such an extent that now, if you think about it, the most common literary tropes for women will say they have the most value, maybe the only value, if they can beat up bad guys, hold their liquor, and work multiple jobs. In other words, culture saying, and the most common literary trope right now is that women have the most value if they act like men. And if you notice, the men in 2 Samuel 20 aren't doing very well. It's a lie from Satan that women only have value if they act like men. Prisons are filled with men the most. Men suffer the most mental health illnesses. They die in wars the most. They commit the most violent crimes. They die in the most violent ways. They, they, they are killed in the most violent. They die on their jobs more than women. And culture thinks that only if women can act more like men, they will have a better life. And what's lost, can I plead with you from Genesis, what's lost is the unique, indispensable contribution that women as women bring to life. In the name of liberating women, they're actually saying you, will, you should only feel valuable if you can act and live in all the ways that men do. And I want to say God made male and female in his image and he made male to act as male and female to act as male in overlapping but different ways. You don't want two suns. You don't want two moons. They're both needed. And if you only have one, you ruin God's beautiful design and something is missing in culture because of that. I'm just saying, please be aware. Because here's, here's what I'm going to point out. This woman wins this battle in this case, not by muscular strength, but by her wisdom and her character. She keeps a kingdom from a devouring itself, not by chewing tobacco, swinging a bug light, and having an arm wrestling competition and saying, women can be as strong as men. She wins by her character and her wisdom. And the text says she's peaceable and faithful. Not by outer strength, but by her inner feminine beauty. What Peter will later say, by her respectful and pure conduct, wives will win over bullheaded, burping, unbelieving men. The hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, is a great weapon and blessing in culture and in the world. First Peter three, three to four. All right. Matthew Henry for the last time. He looks at this text and he says this. You know what you see here? Though the man is the head, it therefore doesn't follow that he has a monopoly on all the brains. Come on, you're supposed to say amen to that, right? In this case, God uses the hidden inner beauty of a wise woman full of virtuous character to bring a kingdom back together. These are the more kinds of literary pictures and what godly womanhood should be celebrating. And then as the chapter 
ends, it ends as it begins. The trumpet blows, and over the wall comes Sheba's head with a thud, and it rolls and tumbles to Joab's feet. And the story is saying, I know it's gross. Look at it. The trumpet blows. Look at Sheba's head. And remember for a final time in this chapter, as you see Sheba's head at Joab's feet, remember this, the Lord hates the one who sows discord among brothers. The one who destroys my people, I will destroy him. And once and for all, David resettles Jerusalem. The kingdom is finally established, but things are different now. Things are so different than they were when he first settled it in 2 Samuel 8. How do we know that? At the end of 2 Samuel 8, there's a postscript that mirrors this postscript here in 23 to 26. But when David first sets up his kingdom at the end of 2 Samuel 8, here's what we read. Here's the first line. David sets up his kingdom. He's in Jerusalem. Here's the first line in 2 Samuel 8, 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Is that what's happened in these chapters, though? But notice how the postscript now begins as the kingdom is set up for a second time. The first line is this. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. David is no longer mentioned. Joab has done what neither Absalom nor Sheba could do. He's begun to run as reign as if he's king. This is God's reunited king and kingdom imperfectly done. Why? Well, I mean, we're going to leave these chapters and move on to 21. But for the final time, what you're seeing is all the bloodshed comes back at one level to David's sin. You know what one lesson is of this chapter is? Of these several chapters? Don't sin. Remember we had a members meeting a year ago and we couldn't take in an associate pastor and people said, how can we help? And Peter the lion-hearted stood up right there and says, you know how you can help this church? Don't sin. Don't sin. It's not worth it. When you sin, you can leave your church or your family wallowing in their blood and heads rolling around in the dust. It's not worth it. But at another level, God's promises hold. God's faithfulness shines all the more because we thought David was the final king, but we should have read 2 Samuel 7 and heard God say, you ain't the final king, David. God promised to David that one day a king would come through David who would not only save God's people from their sin, but who would save David from his sin too. The chapter leaves us with a deep longing for a king who won't sin and who can help others escape their sin. And Jesus, the son of David, did what Sheba and Joab did not do. Jesus served us by dying for us, not asserting himself. And Jesus did what David could not do. He removed the dividing wall of hostility between us. And he made us one by a sinless life and a sacrificial death. And he rose again and he gave us gifts to the church so that we would be one and grow up into him. Nick and I were talking about this passage and Nick says, here's what I think is happening. God's people need a sinless king full of grace and truth who will execute justice and bring God's peace and unity. That's what's happening here. Sheba lost his head. He died as a worthless man and a city was spared. Sheba lost his head, died as a worthless man and a city was spared. But Jesus lost his life. 
He died as an innocent king and the place of worthless people. And now you can be saved and our church can be one because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he loves us?